Hi, everyone. In today's class, you'll hear a discussion between me and my wife, Claire Akebrand, about the first chunk of Vladimir Nabokov's memoir called Speak Memory. Plus, at the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional and just-for-fun writing prompt that will hopefully help you get your memory speaking fluently. Before we uh, dive into that conversation, though, I'd like to uh, share a quote or two or possibly three about writing by Nabokov himself. He's actually kind of a fountain of wisdom when it comes to the topic of writing and how to write and how to become a writer. So I just wanted to share a few uh, of my favorite quotes on this topic by him. First uh, has to do with revision, something we'll be talking about more as this course progresses, but this is what Nabokov has to say about revision. Quote, I have rewritten often several times, every word I have ever published. My pencils outlast their erasers. We might not be writing with pencils and erasers any anymore, maybe some of us do, uh, but I think his point still stands that erasing, 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 writing might be 60%, 70%, 80% erasing, and only actually 20% writing, 20% rewriting, trying to say it better, trying to say it differently, and trying to say it better still. Here's another quote about writing by Nabokov that I really like. He says this, A creative writer must study carefully the works of his rivals, including the Almighty. He must possess the inborn capacity not only of recombining, but of recreating the given world. In order to do this adequately, avoiding duplication of labor, the artist should know the given world. Imagination without knowledge leads no farther than the backyard of primitive art, the child's scrawl on the fence, and the crank's message in the marketplace. Art is never simple. I really like this quote too, because some of us, you know, especially, and I'm talking mostly about myself, of course, who are super passionate about writing and who want to get better at writing and who focus most of their time and attention on this pursuit can forget that we need stuff to write about, and that some of my favorite writing actually is written by people who know a lot about the world, and who have studied other topics besides writing, and who actually have things to say about stuff, <laughs> right? So don't underestimate the, the importance and power of knowledge and of learning. Learning as wide a variety of material as you possibly can. Learn biology, learn chemistry, learn how to varnish tables, learn how to plant a garden, learn how to raise sheep, you know? Anything that you can learn, uh, about anything will make you a better writer. One more tiny, tiny short quote by Nabokov. Um, and then I promise I'll stop, although trust me, it was hard to restrain myself. This is what Nabokov says, quote, caress the details, the divine details. And I hope you noticed as you were reading through the first third of his memoir that that's probably his greatest strength as a writer, his ability to caress the details and to make even the most mundane the most common, the most domestic, the most forgettable details seem divine. He's so exceptionally good at that. And uh, to talk more about why and how he's good at that, let's go to that conversation about the first third of his book between me and my wife, Claire. So here we are again. Today's a special day for us. If you listen in the background, you hear the noise of 
children at school. The first day our kids go back to school. Actually, our daughter's still home, but she's going to kindergarten in about an hour. Wait, aren't you going to introduce me again? This is Claire, my <laughs> wife. I'm just kidding. You're an old guest by now. They know you. You don't need a new introduction. This is my wife, Claire Akebrand. <laughs> Say hello. Hello. Author of <laughs> no, I'm What Was Left of the Stars, no, A Book joking. of Poems, and a novel <laughs> called The Field is White. Both of these vo- books are uh, available for purchase on Amazon. Sponsor. They sponsor this podcast. <laughs> Not amused. Okay, but yeah, we're sending our kids to uh, school today. Our son's been going for a week. Uh, Magda, our daughter, is going to kindergarten today. So we are getting some of our freedom back, which is good, right? Mm-hmm. That's all you have to say about that. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Act more excited. Okay, well, uh, we're talking about Nabokov's memoir, Speak Memory. And I like teaching this after David Foster Wallace because David Foster Wallace is this giant eyeball. I think I described him as a giant eyeball in our last podcast. Walking through the world, writing down everything that he sees. But, of course, everything that Nabokov writes about is gone. He's writing about his childhood, which is even more lost than most childhoods. His family was dislocated during the revolution. They had to flee. They were in, they lived in exile in, in Europe for lots of years. He eventually ended up in England. So he's writing about a place that he could never go back to, literally. And of course, he's writing about a time he could never go back to. But the fact that he's separated from his the place of his childhood by exile makes this book even more poignant. So it's all memory. He has to just sit in an empty room and conjure all of this up without any help. None of it is in front of him. That was the advantage of David Foster Wallace. He got to see everything he was describing. But Nabokov doesn't get to see anything he's describing. He has to remember it all. So today we're going to talk about memory and uh, the part that it plays in writing. Flannery O'Connor, very famous author of extremely marvelous short stories, once wrote that anybody who has survived his childhood has enough information about life to last him the rest of his days. Didn't uh, Rilke say the exact same thing? I don't know. What did Rilke say? In Letters to a Young Poet, he says, anyone who has a childhood has enough material to write about. There you go. So from the mouth of two or three witnesses. Um, this is these are this is a good point to emphasize because it unlike you might have gotten the impression from the David Foster Wallace essays that oh I have to go on a cruise before I can start writing or oh I have to go visit some giant state fair I have to go do a thing I have to go get experience but you don't you already have all the experience you need you could sit in a bare empty room and write a masterpiece mm-hmm. and I think Nabokov's book is total proof of that yeah so Claire usually if this is a class I would have students do. One of those annoying in-class free writes, like, write down your first memory. But, you know, I mean, you can do that if you're listening along. Press pause. Write down your first memory. Just free write as fast as you can. Get it all out. Don't stop. Don't censor yourself. Don't try to be beautiful. It can be a very interesting activity. What's your first memory? I love my first memory. <laughs> I don't think I know the answer to this question. I absolutely love that this is my first memory. I have this image in my mind of being in a dark room in a crib. That's pretty young. Yeah. So I'm in a dark room in a crib, and I'm um, longing for one of my parents. And then 
a door opens and my dad comes through and the light kind of comes through that um, the crack of the door and he has a bottle in his hand and it's formula and it's not just any kind of formula it's chocolate flavored <laughs> wow spoiled yeah i don't know what that was i haven't seen that here in the u.s like i don't it must exist but it was chocolate flavored it was really warm and thick and and it's and i remember really enjoying that <laughs> swedish is what all swedish kids are raised on chocolate milk in a bottle i don't know yeah that's crazy that's a really young memory i know i think in my first memory i'm wearing no pants so i don't know if that means i'm <laughs> I'm in a diaper but i have a distinct memory of wearing a shirt and no pants and i'm standing on a chair in our kitchen to tr we had well, for some reason those old-fashioned pencil sharpeners that used to exist in elementary schools we had one screwed into the door frame of our kitchen and i have a memory of standing on a chair trying to reach it oh and that's I, so poetic <laughs> i'm not wearing yeah i just noticed it is yeah. that's crazy the writer aspires to the pencil sharpener <laughs> hone his instrument <laughs> that's um, insane a prelude of things to come <laughs> Uh, do you have a memory that comes back to you again and again and again like, that won't leave you alone? I don't think I do, really. I mean, everyone does, I guess, to some degree. But I have a lot like that. But, yeah, I have this one family vacation that is always, like, in the forefront of my mind. It's always there. We went um, and stayed in North Germany on a farm near the Baltic Sea, and... I remember so many of those things so vividly. I'm, I was maybe 10, 9 or 10, and I tried like my first fresh carrot <laughs> for the first time just right out of the ground and had dirt on it, and I didn't know you could eat it like that. Mm -hmm. And it was so sweet, and I'm just realizing it's another food memory. <laughs> <laughs> and um, walking in the evenings along anchored ferries and seeing jellyfish down deep in the water, like this dark green water. Yeah. It's pretty Nabokovian memory. Yeah. Beach combing as a kid mm -hmm. with your family. So I want to read. You're getting the sense that I like to read from these books a lot. And I do, because they're just too beautiful to not read from. So I want to read a section from the first third. This is on page 99 of the book. And I think it's a section that does a really good job at evoking the whole project of this book and the whole mood of it and the whole tone of it. And much of its poignancy. So he refers to Mademoiselle, which is one of his various caretakers and nannies, right? And it's just a memory of him being a kid and looking for her and being with her. So he says, For one moment, thanks to the sudden radiance of a lone lamp where the station square ends, a grossly exaggerated shadow, also holding a muff, races beside the sleigh, climbs a billow of snow, and is gone leaving Mademoiselle to be swallowed up by what she will later allude to with awe and gusto as Le Steppe. There, in the limitless gloom, the changeable twinkle of remote village lights seems to her to be the yellow eyes of wolves. She is cold, she is frozen stiff, frozen to the center of her brain, for she soars with the wildest hyperbole when not tagging after the most pedestrian dictum. Every now and then she looks back to make sure that a second sleigh bearing her trunk and hat box, is following, always at the same distance, like those companionable phantoms of ships in polar waters which explorers have described. And let me not leave out the moon, for surely there must be a moon, the full, incredibly clear disk 
that go so well with Russian lusty frosts. So there it comes, steering out of a flock of small dappled clouds, which it tinges with a vague iridescence, and, as it sails higher, it glazes the runner tracks left on the road, where every sparkling lump of snow is emphasized by a swollen shadow. Very lovely, very lonesome. But what am I doing in this stereoscopic dreamland? How did I get here? Somehow the two sleighs have slipped away, leaving behind a passportless spy standing on the blue-white road in his New England snow boots and storm coat. The vibration in my ears is no longer their receding bells, but only my old blood singing. All is still, spellbound, enthralled by the moon, fancy's rear-vision mirror. The snow is real, though, and as I bend to it and scoop up a handful, sixty years crumble to glittering frost dust between my fingers. And this is what he does over and over again in this book. He paints a scene from his past and then reminds us of him in the present and then somehow describes very vividly and beautifully and sadly the emotion or the sensation, the physical sensation of watching this memory kind of dissolve in your hands or of kind of holding the past for a moment and then realizing that you're not actually holding the past. You can never hold the past. The past is always dissolving and slipping away. So it's a book, page after page, of him reaching, trying to grasp, holding on to fragments, and then watching the fragments dissolve again. It's very sad. Hmm. I find it so sad. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to read another section now. And after I read this section, I'm going to ask why we care about, about his childhood. So yeah, Rilke and Flannery O'Connor might have claimed that as a writer, if you've survived your childhood, you have enough material. But that's not really enough, right? You, ha you have to evoke that material on the page in a way that strangers will find interesting. Mm -hmm. How do you make strangers care? So I'm going to read this section about his mom hunting for mushrooms. And I'm going to ask Claire why she cares about this passage. This isn't about you. This isn't about your life. You don't have a similar memory. And yet he somehow makes you care. So how does he make you care? It's two pages. It starts on page 43. He's talking about his mother. One of her greatest pleasures in summer was the very Russian sport of Hadid Pagribui, looking for mushrooms. Fried in butter and thickened with sour cream, her delicious finds appeared regularly on the dinner table. Not that the gustatory moment mattered much. Her main delight was in the quest, and this quest had its rules. Thus, no agarics were taken. All she picked were species belonging to the edible section of the genus Boletus, Tawny Adilus, Brown Scaber, Red Arantiacus, and a few close allies, called tube mushrooms, by some and coldly de defined by mycologists as terrestrial, fleshy, putrescent, centrally stipitate fungi. Their compact pellei, tight-fitting in infant plants, robust and appetizingly domed in ripe ones, have a smooth, not laminate, undersurface, and a neat, strong stem. In classical simplicity of form, boletes differ considerably from the true mushroom, with its preposterous gills and a feet stipple ring. It is, however, to the latter, to the lowly and ugly agarics, that nations with timorous taste buds limit their knowledge and appetite, so that to the Anglo-American lay mind, the aristocratic boletes are at best reformed toadstools. Rainy weather would bring out these beautiful plants in profusion under the firs, 
birches, and aspens in our park, especially in its older part, east of the carriage road that divided the park in two. Its shady recesses would then harbor that special bolidic reek that makes a Russian's nostrils dilate, a dark, dank, satisfying blend of damp moss, rich earth, rotting leaves. But one had to poke and peer for a goodish while among the wet underwood before something really nice, such as a family of bonneted baby Adilus, or a marbled variety of scabber, could be discovered and carefully teased out of the soil. On overcast afternoons, all alone in the drizzle, my mother, carrying a basket, stained blue on the inside by somebody's whortleberries, would set out on a long collecting tour. Toward dinner time, she could be seen emerging from the nebulous depths of a park alley, her small figure cloaked and hooded in greenish-brown wool, on which countless droplets of moisture made a kind of mist all around her. As she came nearer from under the dripping trees and caught sight of me, her face would show an odd, cheerless expression, which might have spelled poor luck, but which I knew was the tense, jealously contained beatitude of the successful hunter. Just before reaching me with an abrupt, drooping movement of the arm and shoulder, and a poof of magnified exhaustion, she would let her basket sag in order to stress its weight, its fabulous fullness. Near a white garden bench on a round garden table of iron, she would lay out her bolites in concentric circles to count and sort them. Old ones with spongy, dingy flesh would be eliminated, leaving the young and the crisp. For a moment before they were bundled away by a servant to a place she knew nothing about, to a doom that did not interest her, she would stand there admiring them in a glow of quiet contentment. As often happened at the end of a rainy day, the sun might cast a lurid gleam just before setting, and there on the damp, round table, her mushrooms would lie, very colorful, some bearing traces of extraneous vegetation, a grass blade sticking to a viscid fawn cap, or moss still clothing the bulbous base of a dark, stippled stem. And a lonely looper caterpillar would be there, too, measuring, like a child's finger and thumb, the rim of the table, and every now and then stretching upward to grope, in vain, for the shrub from which it had been dislodged. So this is a memory from a man that we have never met, who is not close to us in any way, about a thing that happened to him when he was a boy a hundred years ago. It's not even a grand or important thing. It's just a mundane daily chore. Why do you care about this? Why should we care? I think... One of the greatest appeals about that section is how he uses both extremely scientifically accurate language and also his emotionally accurate language. That just makes for a very rich, very rich writing. And there's something fairy tale like about all of it. And it doesn't even, I mean, he is romanticizing this experience. But he's also describing it as it was, I'm sure. The way his mom, I, I thought it was beautiful, her her coat, um, the greenish-brown wool and the mist that clung to it. like So good. A mist around her. She becomes this um, fairy tale-like creature. Yeah. A mysterious being from the forest, from some enchanted forest. Who emerges in a halo of mist and dew. Yeah. And the way she lets the basket sag to show the weight of the 
of those magical things she found yeah. in that forest. And the bet that the basket is stained blue with someone else's whortleberries. Oh, so we see oh the, my gosh. <laughs> the stains on the bottom of the basket. We see the mom surrounded in dew and mist. Yeah. It's, it's like a, more tactile than a real experience. <laughs> so he just floods you with tactile details. Yes. It's just a flood of tactile details. This is a question. This is a psychological question. Maybe this isn't even a writing question. Why do, why is it that those tactile details make you care? So your answer to the question, why do you care, is generally speaking, tactile details. Well, I don't know how I would answer this question. Why do we care about tactile details? Because he seduces you through your senses. You can't help but be lured into this world because yeah. it's too delicious. Yeah, that's exactly right. You're totally. I think the word delicious is totally right. You're totally transported through your five senses mm -hmm. so that you feel like you're there in the moment. You're seduced into a different time and a different place. Mm -hmm. And you can smell the grass and you can see that mist and you can see those whortleberries. You can smell the pine trees. And he, I mean, how wonderful is it that he's inspecting these mushrooms so closely that he sees that there's still an inchworm on one. Mm. Who's longing for his former... <laughs> Location. Okay, that is so great, right? Yes. So why is that so great? Well, the that little worm becomes another metaphor for how he is removed from his childhood, from his place of, um, yeah, how he's been exiled from so his home country. I'm going to now reread this last bit and revise it so that it's worse. And you're going to tell me why what I've done makes it worse. Okay. And a tiny looper caterpillar would be there too, measuring like a child's finger and thumb the rim of the table and every now and then stretching upward to grope in vain for the shrub from which it had been dislodged, just like I grope in vain through my memory for the places and times of my childhood. Yes, indeed, this worm was a metaphor for me <laughs> and my pain and lost childhood. Period. End of chapter. Why is that worse? I feel like as a reader, it's a letdown because I think a reader likes to feel empowered and likes to feel that, like they're in on the secret and that um, you're in communion with this, with the writer, without certain things even being said. There's yeah. something exhilarating about that. Yeah. Like you're feeling the same things, even though they're not, you know, explained for you. So I think there's something rewarding as a reader in understanding the clues. Okay, so do you know right? Totally. If you're if you listening out there are making a list of how to write based on this reading, the Nabokov book, you could put on that list. Don't over-explain. Right. Don't spoon feed, and this is a symbol for, and this is an analogy of, right? Because that's extremely limiting. If you don't explain it, because you might not even know why a certain image evokes feelings in you, or you might not yeah. even know all the feelings it evokes, you don't want to limit that image to one thing. Right. Because then you explain it, and then that's over, and the reader doesn't have to think about it any further. I'll just make it quieter. But you have to make it, like, totally silent. Yeah, so you better do it in the living room. It's better to do it in the living room, okay? We'll be done in a minute. I'm going to make it like that. No, 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 you have to do it in the living room. It has to be so quiet that we can't hear it. Okay. Okay. Another reason I would add to that is because... I don't think it has to be a symbol or a metaphor to be valuable. It's just mm -hmm. an observed detail from this world, and it's it's elevated to the place of 
meaning just because of how vivid and startling and lush it is as its own detail. So mm-hmm. some some readers might notice, oh yeah, this is just like him groping for his lost childhood. Mm-hmm. He he too has been dislodged. But in a way, symbols can so often cheapen the images that they use yeah. into being just fodder for symbolism. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I love that he doesn't cheapen this image because he wants to celebrate this worm as a worm. Mm-hmm. You know, not as a symbol for him. Yeah. He's celebrating it as a thing. As, he's celebrating it for what it is. Right. And by saying it's a symbol for my lost childhood, then he's taking that away from you because you, you might have wanted to view That's it that exactly way. That's exactly right. Yeah. It gives us more, it lets us have more ownership over this book, I think. Yes. Do you have any favorite like bits or sentences? You love that thing about time. Oh, yeah. I think he's really good at making concrete abstract ideas like time. How would you describe time? It's it's extremely difficult. I've tried it myself, and I definitely did not do it as well. <laughs> That's not true. You did well, a great job. Not as well as him. Come on. <laughs> well, I'll read this section. Or do you want to read it? No, you read it. I'll read this section that you love so much, and then you can say why you love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here it is. So maybe I should read a little bit of a preamble. Thus, when the newly disclosed... So this is on page 21. Thus, when the newly disclosed fresh and trim formula of my own age, 4, was confronted with the parental formulas, 33 and 27, something happened to me. I was given a tremendously invigorating shock, as if subjected to a second baptism, on more divine lines than the Greek Catholic ducking undergone 50 months earlier by a howling, half-drowned, half-vicar. I felt myself plunged abruptly into a radiant and mobile medium that was none other than the pure element of time. One shared it, just as excited bathers share shining seawater, with creatures that were not oneself, but that were joined to one by time's common flow, an environment quite different from the spatial world, which not only man but apes and butterflies can perceive. So why why is that so good? I love that he describes it as a kind of baptism, and as invigorating... I mean, diving into water is, no matter how casually you do it, it's an invigorating experience. There's a sense of risk and there's a sense of um, excitement. And I love that in this book, one of the greatest tragedies is time. Yeah. But he celebrates time in this section as something that binds us humans all together. We share it. We all swim in the same sea of time together. And I think that's such a beautiful and hopeful thought, this uh, shared human experience of, you know. And it gets even more cosmic than that. It's not just a shared human experience, but we share it with apes and butterflies. I know. That's such a, you feel so much less lonely. Totally. Like we're part of this grand design, this grand creation. And yeah, maybe our little solo has to come to an end, but there's this greater unit out there that everyone is composing together. Mm -hmm. And it seems like he became closer to his parents in that moment because he realized that they're not separate entities really from him. Well, they are, but but they are swimming in the same sea. And, And he, as a writer, can kind of conjure them back up. Like, I love also that he'll talk about the past as if it's coming right back up at him. Mm-hmm. There's this moment I remember where he, he's a kid on a beach, just like your memory of beachcombing, and he's there's someone, some other kid on the beach has a dog, and he's trying to remember what the dog's name is, and he can't get it, he can't get it, 
he's like in the process of writing about this memory he's frustrated that he can't remember the name of the dog and then he says here it comes here it comes i can finally remember the name of the dog and it is so he's embedding into the story the experience of remembering and how difficult that can be sometimes and how when a memory is recalled finally it can feel like a victory over chaos a victory Mm -hmm. over loss a victory over time like Mm -hmm. his parents his mother hunting mushrooms she has for a moment at least at least one brief moment been rescued Mm -hmm. from death because here she is now forever in Mm -hmm. this book yeah i love that i love that he describes that moment of here here the memory comes it's almost back i've had that happened to me so many times where I try to remember somebody's name or like maybe an actor's name and I kind of refuse to Google it because I want to prove to myself (laughs) that my brain can do it. And then I love that moment where you can feel it almost coming, Yeah, but you don't know it yet, but you feel it. It is, it is physical. It's like a physical kind of, I don't know if endorphins get released, but you feel like some victory has been achieved. Yeah. It's amazing. But your the, your comment that you make about he embeds, he, he describes abstractions in mm-hmm. concrete terms, I think yes. is so spot on. Because he could say, oh, time, he could keep it all in the abstract. Mm-hmm. We lose things in time, time passes. Mm-hmm. But he makes you feel it. He plunges you into it, literally. He, make, he gives it a smell and a taste and a temperature. Mm-hmm. Right. I actually wanted to read on this point a section from later on in the book. So maybe if you're listening to this, you haven't got there yet, but you will. This is on page 217, and he's describing the moment that his first poem kind of comes to him. And this is just a paragraph, page 217. A moment later, my first poem began. So first of all, this is a paragraph of exceptionally good writing. I think this is one of the best paragraphs in one of the best books of the century, to be honest. So first of all, I'm reading this because it's exceptionally good writing, but also he's kind of teaching you how writers are made and what to focus on if you want to become a writer. So we should all be paying attention. A moment later, my first poem began. What touched it off? I think I know. And we might be thinking, I shouldn't be interrupting him like this. It's kind of annoying, but we might be thinking, oh, maybe it was an emotion or his first love or grief about losing his parents or something like this. No, 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 no. What touched it off? I think I know. Without any wind blowing, the sheer weight of a raindrop shining in parasitic luxury on a cordate leaf caused its tip to dip, and what looked like a globule of quicksilver performed a sudden glissando down the center vein, and then, having shed its bright load, the relieved leaf unbent. Tip, leaf, dip, relief. The instant it all took to happen seemed to to me not so much a fraction of time as a fissure in it, a missed heartbeat, which was refunded at once by a patter of rhymes. I say patter intentionally, for when a gust of wind did come, the trees would briskly start to drip altogether in as crude an imitation of the recent downpour as the stanza I was already muttering resembled the shock of wonder I had experienced when for a moment, heart and leaf had been one. Mm. (laughs) Man. Makes you want to give up, doesn't it? I feel like all of us must have had millions of these experiences and not known it. Well, maybe we knew it, but we wasted them. Like, we didn't think that they would count as great writing or that they don't deserve to be in the book of our life. Yeah. I feel like with details like this, 
it's easy to say that maybe they matter because they're pretty or beautiful, but I think it's much more than that. I think this kind of deep observation makes you present in the world. Yeah. It's like meditation. Yeah, that's so great. I think that's so right. So they're not they're not meaningless details at all. They ground Right. They ground your whole being in the here and now. Yeah, that's extremely profound. <laughs> it's extremely profound. Yeah. So tip to all writers out there, don't start a poem with an emotion or an idea or an argument or a philosophy. Start a poem with the way one drop of water slides down a single leaf. Mm-hmm. That is a poem. And you don't even need to get to an emotion or an idea or a philosophy. The poem can begin with a drop of water on a leaf, and it can end with a drop of water on a leaf. Mm-hmm. If it grounds you and the reader in the here and now, that's an amazing achievement. That's what literature is for. Yes. But there's, I mean, have you ever heard a better description of anything in your whole, your whole entire life? <laughs> I mean, I know it's like, well, that's kind of pretty, but then it keeps getting better and you're like, better and better. Wait, we're talking about a leaf, right? (laughs) I should remind everyone listening that English is not Nabokov's first language and this book is not a translation. So he's writing this in English, which he learned later on as a kid, right? (sighs) Yeah. Uh, What looked like a globule of quicksilver performed a sudden glissando down the center vein and then having shed its bright load. The, the relieved leaf unbent. Tip, leaf, dip, relief. Mm. Go and do thou likewise, I say to myself. You know, I wish I could write that well. Mm-hmm. So we have to slow down. I don't know. I'm getting like paternal now and telling people how to live. But we're all too busy to be great writers. Don't you think? Like, we all need to go somewhere where we can sit still without our phones and stare at something for a long time. Yeah, that's extremely rewarding and good for your health and mental health. And yeah, and obviously <laughs> just good in every way. Crucial to your writing. Yes. Do you have anything to say, Claire, about... So in that passage I read about the sleighs and Mademoiselle leaving on one sled and the snow, and he says, oh, there must have been a room. Uh, there, sorry, there must have been a moon, because what is a Russian winter without a moon? So I'll put a moon in there. Mm-hmm. Look, there it is. This is, he's advertising that these memories can be partly inventions. Yeah, that memory is creative. So do you have anything to say about how loyal we should be to the truth when we write about our memories? How, how, how much are we allowed to fill in details that we don't actually remember truthfully? What, what would you say? I think add whatever details and things you need to in order to make it feel authentic to you like so he felt there needed to be a moon yeah and so he added it because in his his memories of his childhood of russia yeah in the winter include a moon (laughs) so it emotionally is true yeah there emotionally was a moon there yes he could look up in an almanac, was there a moon out? Or maybe it, there was no moon that night. Yeah. But his his priority isn't astronomical verisimilitude, you know, to the exact degree. Mm-hmm. His priority is to evoke what that felt like for him. Yes. And to evoke that feeling truthfully, he needs certain details. Mm-hmm. What? Where's the line? I mean, are, as an author, are you allowed to say, and then when I was seven, we moved to... Columbia and I started a monkey farm and well. learned, you know, 
I don't know. If your goal is to write an autobiography, it should be, I think, at least the events should be more or less accurate. <laughs> yeah. But, but the set design. So the plot maybe should be accurate, but the set design, like yes. what color the furniture is and yes. who's wearing what clothes. And, you know, all that will require a lot of creation. Right. If you're a journalist, you might not want to... Yeah. invent as many details <laughs> but journalists don't really need to anyway another thing i want to point out about this is that meanwhile there's like a russian revolution going on and there's a first world war later on in the book there's a second world war going on and i want to read you just a little bit of where this comes up my question is why does he focus on inconsequential i mean we've already kind of argued that they're not inconsequential that they're very profound but you know what i mean why does he focus on very small domestic memories while major historic events are going on around him outside that's the question so like for example the bottom of page 46 my mother knew well how hurtful a broken illusion could be the most trifling disappointment took on for her the dimensions of a major disaster one christmas eve in vera not long before her fourth baby was to be born she happened to be laid up with a slight ailment and made my brother and me, aged respectively five and six, promise not to look into the Christmas stockings that we would find hanging from our bedposts on the following morning, but to bring them over to her room and investigate them there so that she could watch and enjoy our pleasure. Upon awakening, I held a furtive conference with my brother, after which, with eager hands, each felt his delightfully crackling stocking stuffed with small presents. These we cautiously fished out one by one, undid the ribbons, loosed the tissue paper, inspected everything by the weak light that came through a chink in the shutters, wrapped up the little things again, and crammed them back where they had been. I next recall our sitting on our mother's bed, holding those lumpy stockings, and doing our best to give the performance she had wanted to see. But we had so messed up the wrappings, so amateurish were our renderings of enthusiastic surprise, I can see my brother casting his eyes upward and exclaiming, in imitation of our new French governess, Ah, que c'est beau, that after observing us for a moment, our audience burst into tears. A decade passed. World War I started. A crowd of patriots and my uncle Ruka stoned the German embassy. Peterburg was sunk to Petrograd against all rules of nomenclatural priority etc., etc. So meanwhile, there's a war going on, world events are happening, but no, no, no. What I want to focus on is this time where we unwrapped our gifts, wrapped them back up badly, and pretended that we were surprised. It's such a charming memory, isn't it? That he cared mm. enough about his mother to like reenact the surprise for her. But why focus on that as opposed to World War I? I think it's a really smart move because you he's exposing how vulnerable humans are, how vulnerable his mom was. She this little thing, the fact that she wasn't going to be able to surprise them at Christmas, made her cry. Yeah. So what is this war doing to her? That's a kind of era for the mom in that moment, and for, certainly for the boy in that moment. It doesn't matter what world events are happening. This is this is a tragedy, you know? Right. But don't you know what I mean? Like, by exposing them, these kinds of vulnerabilities, these small ones, it makes it more, even more tragic that there is a war going on because it's, it's not just a war happening to numbers, it's a happening to real people. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I see what you mean. People who cry when their kids see their Christmas presents too early. That's totally great. That's analogous to what you meant about him concretizing abstractions like time yeah. with tactile details, right? So mm -hmm. the war wouldn't be sad if it was just vague statistics right? and, and geography, right? Mm -hmm. 
Germany versus Britain, right? Yeah. The reason why the war is tragedy is because there are individual people with individual lives in houses unwrapping Christmas gifts with mothers who are bedridden. Mm-hmm. That that's what matters in the world, and mm-hmm. that's why wars are sad because they destroy lives like that. Right. I think that's a great answer. So, yeah, what else can we say about this? There's lots more in the book to come. In fact, some of my favorite book, some of my favorite parts in the book happen at the end when he has a wife and a kid, and he talks about the kid and to the kid and to the wife. Mm-hmm. It's all very beautiful. But last words? How would you how would you write like Nabokov? I think I would be co- be more committed to facts. <laughs> um, the the scientific more... names of mushrooms, for example. Yeah. I think it's really beautiful that he is so interested in things in a scientific way, but also in a poetic way. He's mixing those two, and that makes for really mm. interesting writing. He's saying that both are valid. Yeah, I love that. So look at the world like a scientist and an artist at the same time. Yeah. You know? Don't think that the scientific name of a mushroom isn't beautiful. It's right. a beautiful word. Mm-hmm. So you should get it right. And glissando, you know, look at that diction. The, the dewdrop performed a soft glissando down the, which I think, I think is a musical term. So find words, this, again, this is the mot juste, find words that are surprising, lush, beautiful, and describe exactly what you want. Mm-hmm. And no memory from childhood is insufficiently, no memory from childhood is small. No memory from childhood is too small to write about. Write about the time when you were eight and you saw a bug on a mushroom. Mm-hmm. You know, if you just do that for 300 pages, you've written one of the best books of the century. <laughs> it's that easy. So, for today's writing prompt, following on the theme of memory, I guess we could call this writing prompt memory rescue or something. I should probably stop trying to come up with names for these prompts. Anyway, when um, writing prompts based on memory are given, it's usually to remember a very vivid or exciting or traumatic or memorable event. And usually as writers, when we think about our childhood and our past, these are the first kinds of things that come up as potential material for writing, material for stories or poems. Instead of that, though, for this writing prompt, I want you to do kind of the opposite. I want you to try to remember and then to recreate in words a very normal, average, and forgettable evening at home when you were maybe six or seven or eight years old. Okay, so this is not a special day. This is an average day. This isn't a birthday. This isn't the first day of school. Try to remember the default evening at home when you were very, very young. Okay, close your eyes and try to recall the scene. Dinner is finished. The table and the dishes have just been cleared away. Where are you in the house? Where are your parents? Uh, Think about caressing those divine details, as Nabokov talks about. So, for example, what color clothes is your mom wearing? What sounds are coming from upstairs? Whose voice do you hear talking on the phone? What does the carpet smell like? Where are your siblings? Are the windows open or closed? Are the drapes moving or still? Is the floor creaking or is it silent, etc., etc., etc.? Just try to free write as many details as you can like this for about 10 minutes, filling as much of the page as you can with sights, smells, sounds, and textures. Again, there's no such thing as a detail that is too small, too mundane, too uninteresting. If you can caress them, these details, and make them shine, this is what you build great writing out of. 
So give that a try and see what happens. Today's poem of the day uh, really exemplifies how powerful you can make just a normal, everyday, mundane event of childhood seem divine and magic. It's a very famous poem by the poet Robert Hayden, and it is called Those Winter Sundays. Sundays, too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold. Then with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house, speaking indifferently to him who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed that uh, discussion about uh, Nabokov's memoir. The next recording will be between me and I'm not sure, perhaps maybe one of you, about the next third of his book. In the meantime, keep enjoying his book, keep reading, keep writing, and don't forget that you too have what it takes to become a great writer.